invite you to pray with me. Father, we're so grateful that you are a God who has given us your word. Lord, that you guide us in our worship. You teach us your righteousness and your truth. Lord, that through your word, you lead us to the gospel in Jesus Christ. Lord, forgiving our sins and drawing us into home, the home that we long for in relationship with you. And so, Father, I pray, I pray that you would help us this morning, that you would speak powerfully through your word, that your spirit would convict us and teach us. And Lord, that whatever our circumstances here in this room this morning, and that you would lead us in the midst of the various struggles and sufferings that we're going through to have hope in you through your word. Lord, would you make us more like Christ? Would you help us to know your love and to love you deeply? In Jesus' name, amen. So we're in Psalm 39 uh, this morning. And in 1 Samuel, we read about David, the author of Psalm 39. And as we look at 1 Samuel, you can kind of see the narrative of David's life played out. He's the, the, boy, the boy hero who uh, sets out and defeats the enemy of Israel, Goliath, and leads God's people into this place uh, of, of victory. He's, just, he's been used by God in that way. Uh, he's anointed by the prophet Samuel. He's anointed to be king, kind of like he's been promised to be king by God, but he isn't king yet. He has this long period of, of waiting now to be given the kingdom by God. And he's also a man, as we read the story, who has a strong conviction from God, who knows his place before God, who entrusts himself in this period of waiting to God for him to put him on the throne in his timing and his way. And all the while, he's suffering for it. As King Saul, who is the current king at the time, uh, becomes more and more jealous of David along the way. You can see that God's hand of blessing is clearly on David, right? But then he's upset that God's hand of blessing isn't on him in the same way. And eventually he's angry to the point where he starts striking out against David, seeking to murder David, driving David from place to place as he runs from place to place to place to be away from Saul and to have his life preserved. If you've ever wondered why there are so many Psalms of lament in the first book of the Psalms, Psalms 1 through Psalm 41, it's because they've been arranged, uh, most commentators would agree, they've been arranged to reflect this period in David's life. Psalms of ascendancy, when he's not yet king, when he's under this place of persecution, as he's looking forward to the time when God would deliver him from his enemies. And opportunities arose as the years went by for David to avenge himself on Saul. Most famously, that time when, when Saul comes, David's hiding in the cave with his men, and Saul comes into the cave uh, to relieve himself, and David can reach out and grab his cloak, and his men are saying, David, God's given him to you. You can kill this guy and be rid of him right now. But David won't do it. Right? David knows that obedience to God means not asserting himself over the king that is in place. And those that looked on him in his suffering at that moment, I think they ridiculed him. They didn't understand. They mocked David. David, you must be crazy. What's wrong with you? They were certainly confused. David, we don't understand. He's right here. 
Why wouldn't you strike him? I think that many, even of his enemies were accusing God of wickedness. David, some God you serve. Clearly he doesn't love his anointed. Clearly he's not on your side. He's against you. You can imagine how disorienting this would have been for David living in these years of suffering. And maybe you can even relate to some degree to times of suffering in your own life. And, and the voices around you start to say different things, right? They're speaking into your suffering and they're critiquing the decisions that you've made. Maybe they offer different ways forward and different paths. Maybe they're critical of your faithfulness to God. Maybe they're even heaping up in differing ways, shame and condemnation on you in your life. And you just feel down under this burden of all that's going on. And it's hard to make sense of it all in your suffering. And you're wondering, how do I gain perspective? Well, I think this is the question that Psalm 39 is wrestling with as we look at it this morning. Where can true hope and perspective be found? Where can we find the hope and perspective we long for in a world that's confusing and full of suffering? How can I get there? And in this Psalm, David brings us along with him. It's not so much a narrative looking at someone on the outside, describing all the things that David did. It's an internal narrative, an internal journey as David brings us along with him in his own wrestlings with these questions and takes us by degree through uh, trying to sort himself out and reflect in relationship with others and then reflecting on his life internally and kind of considering the brevity of his life. And then finally turning to hope in God at the end of the Psalm. So that's going to be our outline this morning. We're going to look at David's suffering, David's reflection, and ultimately we're going to look together at David's hope. And Christ today, this is my prayer for you. My prayer is that as we look at this Psalm, that we would journey with David, that we would be taught by the scriptures and that we would come with David to find hope in God, the only one who can give it to us and the things that we endure in this world. So look first at David's suffering with me in verse one, as we begin. David said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. Really, David's in some kind of a situation facing this ridicule from those around him and he determines to be silent. Determines to be silent to to follow God in faithfulness in this place. And we don't know the situation exactly. So I've, I've deceived you a little bit. I've painted this picture for you, this scenario. We don't know exactly what the scenario is that led David to this place or to led David to write this Psalm. It could have been what I described. It could also have been much later in his life. As an older man, he's looking back on his sin and the hardships that he's had. And now in his repentance, trying to follow God in faithfulness, but knowing that, that his son Absalom has risen up against him to take the kingdom from him. Or looking back in grief at the death of some of his children and the suffering that his people, that God's people have gone through. But what we do know is that David prays in verse eight, do not make me the scorn of fools. He's dealing with the accusations of those around him trying to be faithful. And I'm wondering, Christ City, I think this is a point that maybe you can relate to. Maybe you haven't gone through what what David has gone through exactly, experiencing scorn and ridicule and mockery as you're waiting for some kingdom that you're hoping to get. That's probably not your situation. Um, But have you felt misunderstood 
and ridiculed and accused for following God in your life. Heather and I haven't gone through this situation, but, but we know personally what it's like to have people misunderstand us deeply, right? To have people come into our living room. Here is where we're trying to, to live a life faithfully for God and ministry in Vancouver and be like, why on earth of all the jobs that you could choose, why Bryn, are you a pastor? Like, what are you thinking? By the way, if you ever want to end a conversation quickly, just say, oh, I'm a pastor. And, and you can just stop that conversation right there and, and it's closed, right? There's a lot of misunderstanding and confusion about that, that word, right? We've had times when people have come in and they've been Christian friends and maybe even family members who said like, we get that you want to be a pastor, but why here? Why here? Don't you think it could be a little better for you if you moved further east, right? And move, for, move further east and it's going to go, well, you know, that's, that's the place when there's more Christians there, maybe the church would grow more, whatever the case might be. So we've experienced some of these things personally, but if you are open and honest about your Christian faith in your lives, as I'm sure you guys are trying to do as walking faith with Jesus in this city, I'm confident that you've experienced ridicule for your faith as well. At least confusion, at least questions. Or when people look at you and they say, Hey, um, why do you give all that money to the church? You're a generous person. I get it. I know it, but take time for yourself. If you just stop giving, you could get that down payment that you need. You could buy the new car, right? No one's going to judge you. I don't get it. What's with this, right? They look at you. They say, why do you follow the Bible's teaching about sexuality, right? It's a prudish old fashioned book. We're way past this. Why do you keep living here? I mean, you're lonely. You're clearly burning up. Why don't you just hook up with somebody and be done with it? You'll be happier. It's going to be better for you. Maybe they look at you and they see you in a difficult relationship and they're wondering, why do you try to reconcile with this person again and again and again? I just cut the toxic person out already. Why do you keep lowering yourself in humility and loving them? And the reality is these things are hard for us to hear because if we're honest, we're already thinking all of them. Right? If we're honest, we're already struggling saying these things to ourselves and wondering, you know, maybe God isn't the kind of God that has my best interest at heart. Maybe he's not a faithful father. Maybe I've made the wrong choice. I turned left when I should have turned right. And look again at how David responds then in a similar situation, I think different in many ways, but similar in some ways. We can see the comparison in verse one. He says, I will guard my ways that I might not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. He, he determines to say silence that he wouldn't sin against God or, or others. We can imagine how he might do that, right? There's a couple ways that could happen. I mean, he could sin like we do. We're, we're so good at defending ourselves, aren't we? And we feel the accusations and the mockery coming on. It's like, yeah, but what do you know? <laughs> You're just some pagan person who just lives for the pleasure of this world. And I'm going to be laughing with God when you're judged, right? I, I, I'm looking down at you in your sin. And you add sin to sin in your wicked and arrogant response. Or maybe... You could sit in a different way. You could be with them and you're out having coffees or you're gone for a beer or something and you're talking and your friends are asking these questions and you're like, you know what? You're right. I don't know why I follow God. He is an unfaithful God. 
And you sin by dragging God into the mud and the presence of the wicked, like David determined not to do here. See, David determined to be silent and to labor to suffer faithfully, faithfully to God. But it didn't relieve the confusion. Finally, in the confusion of his suffering, David turns to God to get some perspective. So look at our second point, reflection in verses two to four. In that place, David says this, as I was mute and silent, I held my peace to no avail. My distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire burned. And then I spoke with my tongue. Oh, Lord, make me know my end. And what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. Let me know how fleeting I am. Christ, see, David eventually breaks his silence, but we need to learn something here. Because did you see who he broke his silence to? Not to men, to God. I think so often in our pain and our propensity to sin, what we do is we let it all out to everybody else around us. And with all those words, there's a lot of sin. Some of us don't do that. Some of us internalize everything, right? We just bury it. We become kind of bitter and cold and gray inside. But the biblical response is always to bring these things to God in prayer, to turn to him. And David turns to God. He turns to the Lord and he prays for help. He says, Lord, make me know my end. Make me know what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. He asks to gain knowledge about the brevity of his life, to get some perspective on the situation that he's going through. I've seen this in a story of somebody close to me. I want to share it with you. Um, there's, there's a man that, that I know. Uh, it's close to my family. And he uh, was the eldest of six sons. And at 18 years of age, his father died. So it's just him left with his brothers and his mom. And in this, this place, he took this leadership in the family that was just so needed and significant at the time. And he went and he got himself a trade. And he started helping his brothers come into that trade. And they began having success after success. And it started small, but they grew as a family to build company upon company and wealth upon wealth until much later, this is back in 1970 when it all began, much later, they have amassed a fortune and power and significance on this along the way. But about a decade ago, this man was diagnosed with cancer. And he's on his deathbed, it's terminal. He's not doing well. And along the way, he's reflecting on his life. They were raised in the church, but he and his brothers, a lot of them had, had lost their faith in Jesus as they'd grown distracted by wealth and the cares of this world. And it wasn't until he lay dying that he started thinking about his life. What does it mean anyway? What's the worth of all of this? And in that place, he repented. The eldest brother repented. He placed his faith in Jesus. He faced death with a smile, trusting in the grace of God for him. But before he did, he called his brothers, his whole family, the the cousins, the nephews, all the people into his room, to the deathbed. And he said, guys, we've been living for the wrong thing. Along the way, we've lost perspective. We've lost perspective about life. And this is meaningless. We need to live 
for Christ. And he exhorted them with the time that he had left before he passed away. You see, being confronted with death, it helps us gain perspective about our lives. And David prays, O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know that I don't live very long. Let me know that my life is fleeting, that our time here on earth is short. He prays this wise prayer. And the reality is that we need to hear prayers like this and pray them ourselves because today in our culture, we fastidiously avoid talking or thinking about death. So much so, there's other cultures that, that are intimately involved in, in last rites, in, in the washing of the body, the preparation for burial as they, they draw near to a loved one who's died. Our culture hasn't, right? Our culture sanitizes these things. We remove death and make it a professional uh, job to deal with all things death and dying. And we stay over here pretending that, that it's just life as usual. And it's not good for us. It's not good for us. What it does is it makes us vulnerable to think that the stuff of this world is all that there is. It makes us vulnerable to thinking that the vacation, the retirement, the grandkids, the recreational activities, the beauty, the fitness, all those things, that that's what the meaning of life is. And it's not. David zooms out all the way to the end. My life, your life, measured against the eternity of God. What will matter then? David continues in verses five and six. He says, Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. You see, we think that we'll go on forever, but we won't. Our lives are a breath. And at this point, looking at verses five and six, you might be wondering, okay, Bren, like I see that David's reflecting here. It's not looking that hopeful. It's not looking very hopeful. And you'd be right. I don't think this is David reflecting in his best place uh, with deep hope in God. The reality is that just reflecting stoically on the reality that we will die and our lives are short is not very comforting. Just reflecting on death is not the comfort that we need in our suffering. You know, my wife, uh, Heather, many of you guys know her. She has had a lot of experience dealing with death and dying as a nurse especially in the, the fields that she's chosen in ICU, uh, palliative care, and emergency care. And she's seen countless people die in her job. I talked to her about lots of these situations. You know what I never hear? I never hear the glorious story of the person who, who died with, with hope and joy on their smile, on their face. He was just a stoic atheist. I don't hear that story. I do hear stories about the incredible man or woman who entrusts themselves to Jesus who died well. I hear that story often. I don't hear the other one. What I hear instead are profound stories of bitterness and anger and rage as they draw their last breaths. You see, just reflecting on death without the hope that David turns to is not comforting. Stoicism alone can't help you die well. 
See, David didn't find hope and meaning when he was immersed in the words and the opinions of others in the first few verses. And though he gained some perspective from considering his life against the backdrop of eternity, there's no hope found there by itself either. The only place he found hope and true perspective in his suffering was when he turned to God. Look at our third point, hope in verse 7. David prays, And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? The stuff of this world? Material possessions and blessings that I could have had if I just killed King Saul? For what do I wait? My hope is in you. My hope is in you. This is the experience of the person that I told you about on his deathbed. As he lay dying, his thoughts turned from the next business venture. They finally turned in his suffering from the next business venture onto a relationship with God. And he called out with the same clarity that David came to, Oh Lord, what do I wait? My hope is in you. I think when David prays this, suddenly there's perspective. It's like the camera coming into focus, right? And it's, it's a camera of suffering. So you can imagine all the, the pixelated or blurry grays and blacks that are heavy like a blanket coming into crystalline clarity and focus on the light of day in hope in God. This is what's happening here as he turns to God in his reflection and in his prayer. Things come into perspective and he realizes four things, I think, that we'll see now in the rest of the psalm. The first thing he sees is that what he needs most, what he desires most, the thing he wants is God more than anything else. My hope is in you. And second, he sees that there's a fly in the ointment. He sees that his sin is in the way of that relationship. Right? All of a sudden, in the perspective of his suffering, he's like, oh, there's a lot of stuff going on in my heart. There's a lot of things that I'm doing that are contributing to this whole experience. And my sin is separating me from relationship with God. He cries out in verse 8, deliver me from all my transgressions. You see, Christ City, what sin does is it destroys our relationship with God. It separates us from the God that we were made to worship, to love, to obey, and to live for. It gets in the way of all of that. Thomas Merton, he once wrote this. He said, sin destroys the one reality on which our true character, identity, and happiness depend. Our fundamental orientation to God. We are created to will what God wills, to know what he knows, to love what he loves. Sin is the will to do what God does not will, to know what he does not know, to love what he does not love. And in all these things, sin proves itself to be a supreme injustice, not only against God, but against ourselves. Because our sin keeps us from intimate relationship with the God that we were made for. Horribly offensive to him. Our sin is first and foremost, always first against him, but also destructive to our own happiness and hope in this world. And when David recognizes that, he confesses. He acknowledges his sin. It's my transgressions. God, deliver me from my transgressions. These things are in the way. They're an affront to you. Uh, Deliver me from this situation, from these sins. 
And the third thing that he sees, right? So he, he sees as he comes into this place of reflection, turning his thoughts to God, that he wants and desires him, that sin is in the way. And third, he sees that his suffering is not what he thought it was. It's not just meaningless, chaotic experiences in my life. He sees that his suffering is God's loving discipline. Look at verses 9 to 11. I am mute. I do not open my mouth. For it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I'm spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Say a lot. Christy, in the worldview of the Bible, what the scriptures teach is this. All of our suffering here on earth is because of human sin. All of it. It's what's causing the decay and the terror in this world. It's what causes the pain and suffering in our lives of the other sin against us. It's what adds to our own suffering as we contribute to that sin. The Bible doesn't teach that all of your suffering is directly the result of your sin. It doesn't teach that but that all suffering in this world is from this place of sin. And what we do usually in this place of suffering is this. It's, it's to kind of recite that, that famous Dylan Thomas poem at the end of, uh, or in the middle of Interstellar, do not go gentle into that good night, right? Where we rage against our suffering. The poem goes, do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. This perfectly epitomizes the human experience in suffering. We rage against God. We try to find our own way to blessing and happiness. I'm going to figure it out, God. I'm not going to follow you. I'm not going to submit to you. I'm going to do it my way. Yeah, it sucks right now. I'm suffering, but I'm, I'm going to keep going this way. We rage against God in our suffering. But look what happened as David prays verses 9 to 11. When he turns to God in hope, he stops fighting. And he surrenders. He submits to God. Christ said, for us in our suffering, we need to submit to God too. Surrender to his hand in our lives. Look at verse 9. He says, I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. David recognizes that the suffering he experienced isn't just abstract, meaningless suffering. It's actually something else. It's the discipline of a loving father. The discipline of a loving father who's caring for him. Look at verse 11. It's an interesting verse. I love how, I love the image here. He says, when you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Another way of translating that would be, you consume like a moth his desires. Christ City, what we're seeing here is a loving hand of a God who like a moth eats away the garment of our false desires that will only lead us to ruin. Removing them from us, drawing us toward himself. And Christ City, there's so much hope here. 
There's hope to be found in the suffering that you're going through, whatever it is in your life. And knowing that it's not just empty, meaningless chaos, but to take refuge in knowing that a loving God is working all things for good for those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. To know that God is working this out. Maybe you don't see it. Maybe you don't know how. Maybe you can't fathom how. But to surrender and entrust yourself to a God who's working all things for good. I know we get weird about this word discipline, right? We hear that word, we see it in scripture, we apply it to God, and we just think of fathers maybe in our lives who've disciplined us in ways that are aggressive and mean-spirited at times. But that's not what the, uh, the connotation of this word carries. This word is talking about is training us. Training us on the way that we should go that would lead to true flourishing and blessing. Guiding us away from what would destroy us, leading us to what is ultimately good. Look again at that verse. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. And Christ said, the things that are dear to us are so often harmful. We need a parent. We need a God to lead us away from those things. When I was a kid, the things that were dear to me got me in lots of trouble. One time, I'll tell you a story and you will think less of me for it. Um, one time, one time I was, I don't know, 11 or 12 years old. We lived on a farm. And as 11 and 12 year, year, year olds do who live on farms, I like to play with fire. Loved playing with fire. And my dad had uh, large um, barrels that he would use that were elevated to fill his vehicles with diesel fuel. And I thought, you know what would be cool? If I tried to light the, the, the rocks beneath the diesel tank on fire because there's like diesel that's left over. And I'm like, that, you know, the, the thing's a long ways above it. The flames aren't going to reach it. I'll be fine. And my neighbor saw me and let my dad know what was going on. And my dad disciplined me. He, he trained me away from the desire. I love fire. Fire's going to make me happy and give me purpose and meaning in life. And, and removed that from me and pointed me towards a life of true flourishing and blessing, which was not you might guess, building fires under diesel tanks. See, God's discipline is for our good. He consumes like a moth the things that are dear to us to lead us to himself. You know, when I was a, I was a kid, there's another story. I remember um, listening to missionary stories on cassette tapes, all right? So uh, even for me, who I'm much younger than many of you, that dates me for the rest of you that are younger than me. And uh, I listened to these stories. I listened to them with my, my cousins, and, um, and this missionary is telling the story about the way that, that uh, the suffering in his life on, on the mission, how God had used it for so much good and he wouldn't change it for anything. And my, my cousin, under the conviction of the, what this man's saying and the, how it aligned with scripture, he looks over at me and he says, Brent, may God bless you with suffering. <laughs> and I was so offended. I was left reeling thinking, that's the last thing in the world that I want. I mean, I heard what he said, but there's no way I want suffering in my life. I forget it. I don't want this. And Christ said, to be honest, I've lived a lot of my life with this as a motivating desire to flee from suffering. To keep the suffering in arm's length as much as possible. And then 2020 happened. Right? And, and for me, I've said this before, but for me in my life, I have not yet suffered as much as I have into th- until 2020. It's not that I don't think that there'll be worse suffering in the future. It's, it's just that it, it's the most I've gone through to date. But I can honestly say I wouldn't change it. I wouldn't change my, my daughter's seizures. I changed, her, I changed it for her sake, but not for mine. I wouldn't change 
struggling with the anxieties of being a, a new pastor in a young church with all the anxieties that COVID brings. I wouldn't change the way that, that I've held you and wept with you and gone through the pain that we've gone through together. I wouldn't change the way that I, I come back so often, go home and just fall on my face on my floor and weep. And I pray those monosyllabic prayers, help, please, mercy. I wouldn't change anything because God's been stripping away all the silly things that I put my hope in. He's been showing me that he is enough. That he is enough. You see, our father disciplines us for our good. I, I love how the author of Hebrews says it in verses 10 to 12 of chapter 12, 10 to 11 of chapter 12. As our earthly fathers disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful. Amen. It seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. Christ City, I see that happening in this church. I see it not just in my own life. I see it in all of you. As you turn to the Lord in faith and in thanksgiving, I see him refining you. But the fourth thing that David realizes as the camera comes into focus, as he turns to his relationship to God, he sees that the only place hope and home and joy can ever be found are in God. Look at verses 12 to 13. He says, hear my prayer, O Lord, give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears. For I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. And this last cry for deliverance and to realize it's not that the psalmist is saying, God, just look away from me. Like stop being in my presence. He's saying, look away from me in your judgment and your discipline. He's saying, remove the hand of punishment, God, please. Not because he doesn't want God but precisely the opposite because he wants more of him. That's why he cries out, I am a sojourner with you. I am a sojourner with you. My only hope is I am a sojourner with you, just like all of my fathers have been. Christy, a sojourner is somebody who is a traveler who doesn't have a home. Kind of like the modern day refugee trying to find home in a, a modern Western nation. And God's peoples were the quintessential sojourners when in the book of Numbers, they wandered in the desert for 40 years as they waited after God had rescued them from Egypt to come into home, to come to the promised land that he was giving them. They sojourned. They, they looked forward restlessly, hopefully to the time when they would be with God in the promised land. I think this is so much like our experience in life, isn't it? All of us sojourning, feeling restless as we look forward to home. Maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you've been trying to find home. You're just trying to get there. Right? And all these waypoints along the way, you kind of set up and you, you pretend like you're permanent home. You're hoping that they'll be home for you. Right? You, you try out success. Success will be my home. 
for sure. I've got it. If I can just get the success I long for, home will be here. You try out pleasure. If I can get the pleasure that I just, if I just satisfy myself, it'll be home. You try out money, family, relationships, retirement, fitness, hobbies, beauty, whatever it is, it'll be home. But then you get there, you realize the view's not that great, and it doesn't take very long before you get tired of the wallpaper. Right? Like this, this isn't it. You know, C.S. Lewis once said, and this is an awesome quote, I love this quote. He says, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. Christ City, he's right. The reason we grow restless is that we weren't made for anything in this world. We were made for the God who made it. We are made to find our rest in him, to know his love, to love him in return with all of our heart, soul, and mind, to worship him, to live our lives in obedience, submitted to his will, not my way, God, your way, delighting in him as our loving father. See, David turns his thoughts to God and his suffering. And when he does, he remembers where home is. I am a sojourner with you, like all my fathers. I'm journeying through this world. My home's not here. It's with you. It's with you. Christ City, this world's a hard place. (laughs) It's full of suffering. It's full of a lot of confusion. But it comes into focus when we stop fighting God in our suffering. And we surrender to him and come home to him. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you, verse 7. I am a sojourner with you, a guest like my father's. But we have a problem, right? We can see that this psalm is telling us to do something. Find hope, find perspective, find it here by this eternal hope in God, right? Just have that as your perspective. The problem is, have you ever tried to do that? Right? You have these moments of clarity. And then what happens is that you, you go back to your day-to-day life. I mean, I, I preach a sermon. I'm in the word of God. And then I go and I live my life. And I think about my money. I think about the stuff of life and my relationships. And I lose focus and I lose perspective so quickly. See, we have a problem. This is not something that we are even able to do in and of ourselves. You can't have this hope by yourself. You can't have your eyes fixed on a home on your own. You're not able to do it. But there's good news for us because in the gospel, you know what God has done? God has entered the temporality of our place of sojourn to rescue us and to bring us home to himself. He does what we can't do in the gospel. He lifts our eyes off of the grime and the filth of this world by showing us something infinitely better. His steadfast love for us in Christ Jesus. This is what God has done for us. Christ City, our God is kind of like the father. He is like the father in Luke 15 in the parable of the prodigal. In this story, the young man demands his inheritance. He spends it all trying to find the satisfaction, the home, if you will, uh, that he's looking for. He's trying all these things, plugging one thing into the other. And then pretty soon the money's gone. He's living in this disarray and hunger, trying to eat food out of the trough of the pigs where he's working. And he has this moment of, 
of clarity. He says, I will arise and go to my father. I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. He's like, okay, I'll just go to my, I'll go to my father. I mean, he's not going to receive me, but maybe he'll take me as a servant. Right? Maybe he'll take me as a servant. And you might think his father would be full of condemnation and heap up shame upon shame for the way that this boy had celebrated in sin. But in verse 20 of chapter 15 of Luke, we read this. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Christ said, there's at least one thing that we can learn, even in the way that I've just touched on this proverb or this uh, parable. It said, in the story of the gospel, God sees us floundering around in our sin, trying to make a home and trying to get home. And even when we're still a long way off, we're far from him. He runs to us to come and get us to welcome us, not with judgment, but with mercy and grace. You know how he did it? Christ did because the God of Psalm 39 came to us by becoming human, by being born as a human being here on earth, by suffering in the midst of our humanity and the brokenness of this world. He was betrayed and falsely accused He was tortured and murdered and he died for us in the person of Jesus Christ. In Romans 5 verses 5 to 8, we read this. Paul writes, And hope, I think in this God, hope in this God does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts, the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, in the gospel, God shows that his love is greater and more valuable, more beautiful, more awe-inspiring than any of the things in this world. So we see in the gospel, the humility of almighty God coming and dying to redeem his people, to forgive us of our sins. And it's looking to this gospel then that is the only thing that can cause us to have a different perspective. And it's a spirit of God that he's giving us as a gift of grace that draws us to see the gospel for what it is, to marvel at the beauty of Jesus. And Christ said, I want to encourage you when you're wondering, okay, Brent, what can I do right now? What's the concrete takeaway? How can I grow in this hope? And if it's the gift of God, if he's come to get me, what do I do? Christ said, I want to remind you, you have the Holy Spirit. If you're a believer in Jesus, you've been given the deposit guaranteeing what is to come. And the Holy Spirit of God is working in your life right now. It's kind of like the wind coming around the corner from home, carrying the fragrance of home into your nostrils. Reminding you, you weren't made for this world. There's something sweeter and deeper and better. It's this relationship with God that will come into its fullness at the end when you're with him. Grace City in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 8 to 9, Peter writes, 
though you have not seen him, you're sojourning, the spirit of God's at work in you, you haven't seen him, though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So Christ City, what can you do as you're struggling in your own suffering? You need to turn to God in prayer. You need to confess your sins. You need to humble yourself before the mighty hand of God. Acknowledge God, I'm not innocent in this. There's a lot of sin here. I want to repent of it before you. In that place, you need to look to Jesus. The spirit draws you along in this hope. Look to him. Fan into flame the love that you already have received for Jesus. You can do that by pursuing him in his word. Pick up the Bible. Read it. Study it. Pursue him in prayer. Pursue him in community. Come together. Give yourself to serving and worshiping and delighting in obedience to this God here in this church. Lift up your eyes and see him there. Lead your family to delight in God. And serve him in joy. He will help you. He will guide you. He will be at work all the while, fixing your eyes not on what is seen, for the things that are seen are temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Lifting your eyes to himself. Praise the Lord, would you pray with me? Oh, Father, we need you. We are sinners that get distracted by the stuff of this world immediately. And yet we know we're not saved by not getting distracted. Praise God, we'd fail. We're saved by putting our trust in Jesus. And Lord, we know that as a gift of your grace, you've given us your spirit to draw us along, to orient our eyes toward you. So Father, would you help us to walk in the spirit? Would you help us to submit to you? Or would you take our eyes off of the things of this world in your mercy and draw them to yourself? Lord, compel us by a greater love. The love that only you can give us, that you have shown us in the gospel. Lord, we ask all these things in Jesus' name, looking to you with expectation, knowing your grace. Amen.